Hey guys, this is Doug. Thanks for listening to What's the Hazard. I want to recognize our incredibly generous sponsors, Cheyenne Wolford of Custom Concrete Specialists, John Fallowich, Fallowich Construction Services, Jim Cover, Nebraska Department of Labor On-Site Consultation Group, Danny Arroyo, WorkSafe Consulting, and Building Omaha, a collaboration between the Nebraska Electrical Contractors Association and the IBEW. Thank you, one and all. You are true believers in workplace safety and health, and I appreciate you. All right, let's get into today's episode. It is Friday, November 18th. I'm here with my friend Pete Suska, new friend. He is the owner-operator of Operational Excellence, LLC. I love your the name of your company, OpEx. That's fantastic. Welcome, Pete. Uh, it's good to see you, man. No, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I want to I want to shout out to your mom, Charlene. Hi, Charlene. <laughs> yeah, my, mom is listening. She's one of my true uh, true fans, a true listener. She's one of three people that tune in every week. I think so. Good morning, mom. I hope you're doing well. Um, I just want to say one thing before we get started on the subject matter. Uh, Pete and I, I again, Pete and I met at this Make You Safe conference about a month ago in Des Moines. You spoke at the conference. You know, I was the lunchtime entertainment, and then you came on afterwards and actually gave a substantive presentation <laughs> on organizational management, things like that. It was really process. It was really interesting, and we hit it off immediately. And, and, and like I'd said before, at those conferences where you assemble like-minded people, the likelihood of finding somebody that you'll connect with is much higher. And so I think we had kind of an immediate connection. Um, but I want to ask you something. So last night, so I am unfortunately an Ambien-induced sleeper. I don't sleep particularly well, so I do take uh, sleep aid, as they say in the business. And uh, sometimes that involves maybe like uh, an old-fashioned or a Manhattan and a little bit of Ambien. I know we're not supposed to mix those. But I was asleep. I was laying in bed. It was about 11.30, and I hear that chirping of a smoke detector. You know that chirp? Uh-huh. When the battery yes, is starting to go very well, chirp, and I'm I'm laying in bed going, holy shit, chirp, and then I lay there thinking it's going to go away, chirp. So I get up, and I'm still, I mean, this is like an hour and a half into my ambient sleep, so I'm still groggy. So I'm looking up at my ceiling in my living room for the smoke alarm that's chirping, and I can, I hear it. I go out in the garage, I get the ladder. This is bad. Ambient and ladders do not mix. And I'm like up on this ladder trying to find the smoke alarm. I'm pulling them down. They're all the ones that are wired in, connected. So I'm changing the battery, put it back up, still chirps, you know, and I find the other one still chirps. And I'm now I'm, I'm desperate. And I look down and there's a carbon monoxide plug in unit just sitting down there on the that ground. I've been staring at the ceiling the whole time, like a good safety guy. And uh, right there down at the ground level is this old, beat-up piece of shit carbon monoxide monitor that I pull out, and it's, you know, take the it's battery that. out, go to bed. But uh, So I'm running on about two hours sleep and a lot of caffeine, so that's my story. Oh, you're now, doing well. You're doing well. Yeah, I'm doing okay. So um, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. You may be new to some of my audience, certainly these folks here in Nebraska, Iowa, this region. They may not have had the opportunity to hear you. So talk a little bit about your background, if you would, please. And then there is some subject matter I'm really looking forward to getting into. So this is where I yeah, should. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, 
Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. And uh, it was it was very fortunate that we both met, I think. I agree. Um, yeah, yeah, I I got a long circuitous route to to where I am. I don't think anybody really wants to hear that, you know. No, they do. Um, they absolutely. I, um, I, I told you I started in. You heard me say that I started in physics. I was a I was a nerdy kid, uh, introvert, um, like science. Ended up going into physics, phys getting a physics degree, and having my physics teacher say to me. Um, Pete, you know, you know, it'd be a good idea if you didn't go into physics after you graduated. <laughs> and why so, do you so think that was? Why do you think that was? Because my yeah. grades weren't so great. Oh, <laughs> just, oh, like, no. I just kind of made it, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, once you got into uh, differential equations and quantum mechanics, um, I'm a practical person. We'll probably talk a little bit about that. I'm a very practical person, and so all of the science that I, I liked uh, once it became impractical where I could see it in my head, I had a hard time with it. And that's going from Newtonian physics to quantum mechanics. Okay. Right. So uh, I lost, I lost traction at that point. And he said, Hey, you know, my son, Pete, and he, he always liked me. Um, he said, my son, Pete's in safety. You should think about that. Cause you know, I started in, in <laughs> not that safety is, is not, very not smart. so smart people. Right. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, it, it's because I started in, in the fire service. I was a volunteer firefighter in my, oh, probably 19. I started in the volunteer fire service. And that's really where I kind of got involved in safety. And, you know, I had been in a few years and he said, hey, you know, you've got this kind of practical fire service experience and, and safety and, and your science perspective, all that kind of fits together in, you know, in safety. So, you know, I was like, yeah, okay, whatever you say. And um, I ended up uh, going from a fire service to hazmat, ended up getting with, with these national hazmat instructors traveling all over the U.S., all over the world, teaching hazmat response, uh, becoming a fire instructor, becoming a hazmat instructor. I ended up teaching this class in Windsor Locks, uh, Connecticut, uh, for a fire department where they had invited in some industry. And this industry was a company called Hamilton Standard, which was a division of United Technologies. I don't know if you're United mm -hmm. Technologies, but yeah. Pratt and Whitney, Sikorsky, Otis Elevator. I mean, you know, 250,000 employee corporation all over the world, very diverse. And and after the class, these folks said, "Boy, um, you're pretty good at this IH stuff, and you know, you really seem to know what you're talking about." We've got this safety job. There we go, right? We got this safety job. Would you be interested in it? And I said, yeah, I've never worked on the other side of the fence. You know, I'm always visited the other side of the mm -hmm. fence, but never worked there. But yeah, I'll, I'll try that. It was a manufacturing facility. Okay, Doug, here I am on split shift. Okay, I come in at two, I leave at 10. I've got 5,000 people on second shift in five plants in Connecticut, and I'm the only safety oh person. Oh, my God, man. And what time so, frame are we talking about? Is this in the 80s or... Uh, no, this is 89. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, like, oh my God, I've never done this before. I'm like, uh, and you know what? I, I sat at my desk. I, I, back in the days when safety, safety engineers had suits and, uh, well, suits, shirt and a tie. We walked around yeah. with ties all day. We were safety engineers, right? right? And, um, and when I got to my desk, there were already five union guys lined up there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so all I did was union 
grievance, pre-grievance kinds of stuff. My supervisor, yeah. okay, let's go out. And I just got up in the deep end of the pool between supervisors and, and workers and union reps and all that. And it was just a great way for me to learn the reality of the organization. Uh, and from there, ended up uh, getting this job as the um, manager of assurance, which was, I, I was responsible for the management system for the whole corporation. I was responsible for management system auditing, developing auditing programs, developing auditors, teaching auditors, coaching auditors, auditing audits. I traveled all over the world. Okay. And then I got put into the HIPOT program, ended up as a director of environment, health and safety. Uh, my, my job was in Europe. I lived in Berlin, Germany and worked for Otis Elevator. And that's where I learned about fatalities. Um, I had two in one week. Oh my okay, God. While I was investigating one, I had another one. I was in, I was in the Ukraine investigating a fatality and had another fatality in Russia at the same time. Oh my and God. it was fatality after fatality. Um, so, um, from there, uh, went into the you know, corporate and, uh, then I left UTC and started running consulting businesses for other people, uh, mm -hmm. engineering firms and construction and all of those things. So I had P and L responsibility. I also ran quality functions, engineering functions, all kinds of things. Um, and did that for almost 20 years and then started my own business. Um, because one, I, I, Managing people is about the toughest thing that you can do. I think it's a challenging thing that you can do. And I got tired of that. Um, and I, I got tired of doing commodity safety stuff and wanted to focus on the things that I really valued and I really could smile about every day and say, mm -hmm. this is where I want to be. Wow, um, man. That, that is a great description, commodity safety. I've never heard that phrase. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> but I know exactly what you're talking about. And that is really yeah. an accurate description. I'm going to write that down. So, well, you know, and this goes back to being a P&L guy, right? And where, where I'm looking at revenue and profit, I'm looking at staff, I'm looking at cost. I'm looking at, I mean, those are the decisions I'm making every day. And yeah, I'm a safety professional, but I'm a business professional with business goals and objectives. So, so, you, so I know, I know where business people are coming from. I've lived in those shoes and it starts to help. It starts, you start, can start to round your edges on things that you value. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, um, and, and so one of the things is, you know, you're dealing with lockout tackle. Well, there's 15 consulting companies that can do lockout tackle. Why is your lockout tackle any better, cheaper? What I, that's commodity safety, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it was like, oh, this is distasteful. That is so <laughs> accurate, man. I, I love, this is why we've connected so immediately. I think it, this has happened to me. And now, Every time I have a guest on like you or Mark or someone who has had big jobs and done big things, it makes me feel small uh -huh. in comparison. But what you just described, you know, I spent um, nearly 20 years with OSHA and you, you start to think compliance. There's, yeah. there's no way around it. You think black and white regulation compliance. And I've been out on my own now. Uh, just consulting as a as a safety and industrial hygiene guy for local companies, and my edges have also been rounded off because it's never black and white, and it's never just about you know the employer was wrong or the employee was wrong. Prove it, you know, one or yeah. the other. It becomes yeah. this nuanced balance of all of these different things, and and I I still have dear friends with OSHA, but their edges 
have become so obvious when I interact with them and when I speak with them. And these are dedicated, smart guys, but they have never had the opportunity to see different perspectives. And what you've just described, I think, is critical to anybody who does what we do. You need to be able to have seen these other perspectives and appreciate them. I totally agree. I mean, the first thing I um, <laughs> I got this job as a director of VHS for Otis in Europe, and um, the lead company was the German company. Um, and so now I'm sitting in an office with some direct reports. I've got direct reports in each of the countries I'm responsible for. They speak to me in English, and the German office wants me to speak in German. I've got a German keyboard. I've got German Microsoft Word. Uh, everything, everything that I had confidence in as just being easy was difficult. Everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, in my apartment, I didn't even know how to speak to the police. You know what I mean? I can take oh, take away all of your comfort. All of it's gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had to rebuild that. And. Um, it oh, was it was a learning experience at the okay. same time having fatalities at the same time you know just it was crazy i did live in oklahoma uh, was... for a while so i've had similar <laughs> communication issues but um they just speak at a pace that is so slow after four years yeah. at the university of tulsa it, it, it's like readjusting your hearing yeah total, right total yeah. But that, that, that is an amazing so i've never been confronted with issues like that and i've never managed yeah. more than about 10 people you know and so I I have a, a, a sincere empathy for the management challenges of a work a diverse workforce of people who on any given day and again like the you know like the Conklins and the safety two people would say context drives behavior every day is different you know I think we envision oftentimes from a process standpoint you know your expertise that every day will be the same and the process doesn't fluctuate or vary. It never comes off the rails. But every day is different. And every worker yeah. on every day is working under different context. It's really – so I would like to talk a little bit about what you do now. Talk sure. about what you are doing for your clients now. Well, one of the experiences that I I didn't mention in all the many experiences I've had was that uh, I – got indoctrinated into process improvement in 1989, 1990, because the Campbellton Standard was looking for the Malcolm Baldrige Award. And back then, you know, I went through SPC training and I went through all kinds of continuous improvement stuff and all that. So I got indoctrinated into process thinking and um, organizational improvement and all that way back then. And it's really traveled with me as, as a skill set all throughout everything that I've done. I see the world in process. You know, I, that, sure. that's the way I view everything. I view everything as a process, not, you know, to a fault per se, but just I have that way of looking at things. Um, so um, that helped me evolve. All of my experiences that I talked about, all of different roles, helped me evolve into really trying to figure out for the past probably 35 years, where does everything come from? You know, it's kind of like, you know, you're, uh, Galileo, you're on the earth and you're trying to figure out what, there must be something besides the earth, you know, and you're looking at your little telescope and you start to see things and, 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 you know, that's 
that's my science, right? My science is trying to understand where things come from. What is the origination of things? How do things work? How do things fail? Uh, my dad was really good at machinery and equipment. I'm really good at organizational kind of dissecting, you mm -hmm. know? And so I go into organizations and I look for symptoms, kind of like a doctor. Right? I look for symptoms and signs. And then I work my way back because I know the systems and processes that should have either created a good outcome or a not so good outcome. And I go back and I look into that and I begin to see horizontally across the organization where the common challenges are. And I start to work to the top and realize where they're coming from mm -hmm. and then try to help the organization fix those bigger issues rather than chase symptoms all day long, which a lot of organizations are doing today, like chasing yeah. symptoms. And, and safety is a symptom yes. of, of how yeah. we make decisions. Exactly. Thank you. That's exactly well said. I totally agree. And the vast majority of us chase symptoms around all the time and sure. don't look at the system. And I, again, I hate to like dump all this on Conklin and Decker and those guys, but I think I was reading one of Conklin's books and he said something to that effect. Just assume that there was an error and just assume that a procedure was deviated from now let's get to the investigation. Where did the where was the process break down? Uh, did we have a faulty process? Did we not have a process? Was our training inadequate? Whatever. I mean, all those other things are a given, and yeah. we tend to stop at those when we do investigations, as if that was the underlying issue that we're concerned with. So, 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 who calls you, and what are they asking for when someone contacts you? Well. <sighs> Yeah, that's that's part of my my challenge, right? Um, the 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 safety people, the safety executives, safety leaders are the ones typically calling me, saying, mm -hmm. "Pete, I think we've got something that fits your wheelhouse." Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think we, you know it's something we can't handle in the safety realm anymore. It's a it's beyond us. It's bigger than us. We realize it's bigger than us. We don't know how to fix it, and we know that you're that kind of guy. <laughs> mm -hmm, exactly. That's about as good as it gets, right? So you really have to, to you have to make that diagnosis. You're doing a, essentially yeah. a, a diagnosis of. I, I am essentially, I am doing a diagnosis, and, and you know, I, I've got this. You, you saw it in in that that one slide that I presented mm -hmm. that relationship, that relationship diagram, which goes from culture, organizational, operational factors to management systems, to processes and programs to risk to unwanted outcomes, you know, in our world, unwanted outcomes. It, it, the same thing creates wanted outcomes too, okay? Mm -hmm. But we look at it from an unwanted outcome perspective because most people are backtracking that process. Right. To right. the best Absolutely. of their ability, okay? Mm -hmm. And um, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to predict. And, and, and I think I asked this question in the presentation. I think, you, you know, can you predict the future? And people will look at me like, Jesus, uh, you know, is yeah, well, I'm not Nostradamus, but what I'm going to tell you is the more you know about how things work in an organization, you know, more you know about what they look like when they're not healthy, and then the more you know how they're aligned with other things, then these things with those things equal these things. Now we have an equation, and equations are kind of finite mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Here's my science again. Mm -hmm. And see, I did get some out of math. Okay. <laughs> and, and use it, right? And and so now when you know that, then you know if if this number and this number equal that number, right? 
and and you can start to predict what's on the other side of the equal sign. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And yeah. and so, you know, and I think Conklin talks about this kind of uh, pre-incident investigation, you know, kind of methodology. And I, and I've gone to the nth degree with that. I mean, right? I'm I'm not even in safety anymore. Mm -hmm. right? you know, once I I go in through the door of safety, okay. And I, and I don't fix safety. I understand the organization because the process that safety is not so healthy in is not a good process. And many times we in the safety profession put good safety on bad processes. Oh, that's a great it's statement. Kind of, it's kind of like taking, I'm looking at a 1957 Chevy pickup truck right now. Mm -hmm. And and it, it's kind of like saying, I'm going to buy this rusty pickup truck and I'm going to spend $15,000 putting really nice, you know, 10 coats of Emron paint on it <laughs> with the rust still on it. Okay. Now, and I'm going to drive around with that thing for a year and it's going to look great. And all of a sudden one day, it's just going to start to flake off. Right. right? So, so putting... Good safety on a bad process is like putting really good Emron paint on rust. It's going to come off. That is okay? perfect. Because That's a great <laughs> description. Thank you for that. Well, I'm Mr. Analogies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, 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 and the reason why I'm Mr. Analogy is because I have a hard time explaining what I see to people. Mm -hmm. I see things, and, and this sounds kind of weird, I see things in ways that most other people do not see them. Mm -hmm. And for me to help them, they've got to see what I see. I get it. So the more that I can uh, uh, make analogies, the more I can create visuals, the, the better it is for me to share the commonality of what I see and begin to walk people towards what I see. Mm -hmm. And you've got to walk them there. You know, you can't, mm -hmm. it's not a quantum leap. You can't go from uh, unwanted outcomes to culture. Nobody wants to do that. Okay. Right. Oh, that's a great, oh my God, man. There is so much in there to unpack, but there I is a lot to unpack. But I love the analogies, putting good safety on bad processes. You know, and it's interesting. Even in my evolution as a safety person, you know, we used to we used to refer to things as like a safety program or safety director, safety mm -hmm. manager, which I think is totally inappropriate. But that's how it was back when I started in the 80s, you know, in 1987 or something. When I started in as an entry-level industrial hygienist, we had a safety department. We had a safety problem. We, you need to do more safety. We need, you know, who is responsible for safety? We need safety, a safety guy on this. That's right, yeah. It was just ridiculous. All the safety guy. Yeah, and then it, it became kind of like, well, that's not really what, you know, you don't just throw it over into the safety cubicle and let it get fixed. I mean, like, like you described, you can yeah. be, you're probably putting good safety on top of a bad process or no process. And then it kind of evolved into this, you know, you know, we produce a quality product safely, you know, so this production and quality and, and this adverb, yeah. you know, this action descriptor, my mom's an English teacher. So, oh boy. And so the adverb of safely you know, modifies this action of producing something. And that's a little better. I mean, there it's a little bit more integrated, but that doesn't yep. even require. And then I think I heard you or Conklin or one of these guys just describing, we just do work. You know, we work and all of these other things, the quality, you know, the efficiency, the safety, that's just all part of it. You know, it's all an, an inseparable integrated part of what we're talking it about. So 
it, it uh, is in principle, but it's not in practice. And and I don't think most organizations know how to set up an organization that way. Yeah. And I mean, you probably heard one of the questions in the Make You Safe after after like, okay, where does safety fit? Who owns it? All that kind of stuff. Um, what I find, and, and Tom was kidding me about recalibrating leaders. I mean, I spent a lot of time recalibrating leaders mm-hmm. because most leaders, you know, you can go to the best MBA school in, in the world and still not learn how to integrate safety into decision making. Right. They don't learn that in school. Right. Uh, as my dad would say, they learn that on the street. Sure. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. And uh, and so so now I got to go back and recalibrate them to this being a factor in decision making and how to do that. And and what I find is they don't even feel like they have the role or responsibility. They don't know how to do that. You know, a lot of companies talk about accountability, but you got to back into accountability. You can't hold somebody accountable for something they don't even know is their job. Or they don't know how to do their job or they haven't been given the guidance or the tools or the latitude to do. And that's where the root is most of the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's- if the procurement person doesn't know their role in safety, well, where mm-hmm. hazards come through them, right. I call them hazard gatekeeping responsibility. Mm-hmm. Hazards come through all of these folks and they don't see them. They don't right. even know that they're valuable or not valuable. Yeah. Uh, and so, so, yeah, there's a lot here. Was that part of the recalibration process then? Yes, when it you is. Are, yes, you it is. Them realize their involvement in this. Yeah, well, not just involvement, their ownership. This ownership. is ownership, folks. Okay, yeah. you, you know, uh, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I did. Um, I have a lot of stories. Good. I love. <laughs> I, I did some work about five years ago for a company in the Midwest, and we won't name names. Um, that is a grain. Um, does grain and, and methanol and, mm-hmm. and that type of stuff. And part of their, the core of their business is basically buying grain from farmers and upselling it uh, on the market. Uh, so you've got people who are looking at screens of, of future grain futures all day long that are thousands of miles away from the farmers in Iowa or wherever mm-hmm. who are buying this grain at X price and storing it and mixing it and selling it. Well, with the, with the, you know, the guys next to the screens will say to the, you know, to the leaders of the plants, okay, buy grain X at, uh, at, uh, at this price and, and hold on to it for this long. And we're going to, we're going to mix it with lower quality grain and we're going to sell it at this price down the road. And we're going to make X amount of you know profit off of that. Well, you got generally two different types of grains, high quality grain, low quality grain, low quality grain has a lot more particulate in it. It has a lot more moisture in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got called into this company after they had two fatalities, two guys died in a grain silo. Uh, and the reason, the cause from their perspective was these guys didn't follow lockout tagout and, and confined space entry practices. Mm-hmm. They didn't. I mean, they, they didn't. And they did not. Um, I mean, that no, was they did. No, it was a fact. It was mm-hmm. a fact. It, it, but you got to back into the reason why they were doing that job, right? So if you back into the reason why they're doing that job, um, the, the grain silo, which was managing, which was holding low quality grain got bogged up and, and the machinery, you know, to, to move the grain got bogged up and, and somebody had to go in there and, and make it so it would work so we could be productive. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so that was in response to a problem. 
Well, if you back into where that problem was created, where that hazard was created, it was a decision thousands of miles away by somebody who had no value or responsibility for hazard creation. Mm-hmm. All they were responsible for was benefit creation, revenue, profit. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there is the imbalance, right? Mm -hmm. The person who's telling the plant to do something, and I'll tell you, a lot of pissed off plant, sorry, mom, a lot of pissed off plant (laughs) managers, okay, because they're in the middle of all of this. They're realizing what the the, the end product of these decisions are. Right. Uh, uh, So these salespeople had no responsibility for safety whatsoever. And the hazard for bringing those hazards into the facility. Exactly. The hazard was a value to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, but from uh, a, from the from the operational standpoint, that failure was predictable based on the fact that of you're course. low quality, particulate laden, moist right. grain into the facility. Of and I could I could tell you uh, go to prediction now. I can sit down with people at the front end of your business, and I can tell you what's going to happen and what is happening in your plants. Based on what their job is, what they feel their job is, how they're making decisions, I can tell you what the end product of that's going to be. Mm-hmm. I've sat down with so many executives, had maybe an hour conversation, and said, I bet you this got this going on in your plant. I bet you got that going on in your plant. And look at me like, have you been in our plants? <laughs> no, I've never been in your plants. So how do you, how do you, this? How do, you do, how do you do your consultations? Or do you go on site necessarily? Oh, yeah. Or can yeah. you do this? I mean, I always like to go on site, obviously, yeah. and feel and smell and hear and, you know, interact. But I, I would love to have you speak to every one of my client <laughs> teams, frankly, because yeah. you're talking about things that I am not, I, I am aware of, but not well-versed like you. But it, it applies to every organization that I work with. And so, for example, I think we talked before going on online this morning that you know, this week I have interacted with two companies, one that has come to me asking for some consultative assistance that just suffered a fatality, and the other was an existing client, and I, I got to be somewhat careful about this, mm-hmm. um, that just had a near miss that easily could have been a fatality. I mean, it's one of those high criticality near misses that, you know, didn't result in a sprained ankle. This could have resulted in a fatality and the response um that that is elicited by these events is sometimes disappointing you know who do we blame um who's getting fired for this and and much like you've just described you know all of those you know the perfect storm of events started way upstream and wasn't just because this employee neglected to do a certain, like what you just said about ownership of bringing these hazards into the facility. You know, I'm thinking of the near miss and there are people that are bringing the work into this facility at a pace that is unsustainable and putting pressure on these employees to get this stuff done, you know, either taking orders or signing contracts or whatever, and all they care about is like, you know, oh, man, look at what I've done. I just – look at the revenue I'm bringing in here, man. Now just get it done, and we're golden, you know, and the employees on the other end of this are 
shit, I got to cut corners because I can't get all this stuff done. And I'm expected to get all yeah. this stuff done. And, and now it's the employee's fault that we've skipped a, yeah. pro, a step or something. And, you know, who need, whose head needs to roll. Yeah. And um, I, I just, everything you're describing is just so vivid as you describe it anecdotally and you talk about it. You know, it's. Well, it's, it's no. what you know, think? every, everybody thinks their business is different and particular, you know, special and whatever it is, you know, I could go into a place where, you know, we have uh, right. power transmission people. You don't know the Trump power transmission. You don't know this, you know, look, let me just tell you something. Um, here's my analogy. Every organization makes ice cream. They all just make different flavors. It's still mm -hmm. ice cream. Okay. And yeah. And when you look at that relationship that I'm talking about between culture and systems and processes, uh, as you move from uh, outcomes are very different looking, quality outcomes, safety outcomes, uh, ethical outcomes. There's tens of thousands of, you know, uh, uh, different types of outcomes and, and different looking outcomes, right? Risk looks differently. Process, I talked about processes being the, the future of common language in an organization. But when you get to systems and culture, the, as you move from right to left, the variables get less and less. So now in culture, you're dealing with a deck of 52 cards. And it's just a matter of what hand that organization's holding. And what I mean by that is what are these, what are the, what are the issues in that organization? It's a hand out of 52 cards. Mm-hmm. So once you've seen all of it, you've seen all of it. Like I have, mm -hmm. I've seen all yeah. the 52 cards. I've seen all the perturbations of different organizations. It's like, okay, what cards do you have? What cards right. do you have? Right. But they're all the same deck. Right. There's no new cards right. to me. There are no new cards. <laughs> there are not even any new hands at this point because you've seen. Well, yeah, but I also have to, I have to treat it like it's a fresh deal. Sure. Okay. I got to go in there and treat it like it's fresh. I got to listen. I got to ask the right questions. I got, like you said, I got to look at the reality, the operational reality, uh, because that's an indicator of decision making. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I was in, ah, geez, I got so many stories. I was in an organization the other day and a manufacturing plant, and uh, they hired me to do some management system auditing stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm walking around the plant and, and I'm looking for bigger stuff, right? And I see at the end of this machining center, uh, you know, CNC machining center, uh, a red box and it says, do not store on it, right? No storage or something like that. Well, I can't even see the red. I can't even see the writing anymore because there's stuff stored there <laughs> and, they're, and they're parts, right? Now, okay, is this a huge safety issue? No, it's not, okay? But it's a huge organizational symptom that people don't see. And, and my, my point is, if something is obvious, read, and it, it's written in English, and we all speak English in that plant, right? Do not store, okay? And you're storing there, and the person thinks that's okay. Everybody walking by that, by that aisle thinks it's okay. You've got an organizational issue that's much bigger than that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay? You've got a lack of discipline to the point at which now – You've got, you know, normalized deviation, right? You've got, you've got this normalization of deviation and it's not just there. If you look around, it's everywhere. And it looks very differently 
I can see it in quality. I can see it in safety. I can see it in, right? Now, if you've got this variety of right and wrong, you've got some serious issues in your organization. You've got some serious risk that you're not seeing. Okay, safety is an easy risk. Safety is a very easy risk to see. All right, I got to write that down to you, man. Hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, I've uh, just just as a point of, of so you don't have to write everything down. No, I wrote okay. I wrote fifteen articles uh, in the ASSP Professional Safety Journal mm-hmm. between twenty eighteen and twenty twenty, in a column called Business Class, and and the purpose of those articles was to help evolve safety professionals and the safety profession into the kinds of things that I do so that we can become, we can get off safety island onto the mainland, okay? Mm-hmm. And become mainlanders, speak like mainlanders, be valued like mainlanders, right? Mainlanders are the financial engine of, of the organization. Let's not, let's just not, you know, gross on that. That's, that's where the core is, okay? So- and everything, even quality, is on the outside of that. Right. So where are yeah. these? How do I get my hands on these articles? Yeah, yeah well, that's part of the problem. Um, uh, I, they're difficult to find through ASSP. I, I will send them to you, and you can send them to whoever you oh, want. Yeah, you can get me links to them? No, I'll send you a PDF of all of them together. Do you mind if I distribute them? Not at all. I mean, okay, someday, someday I'm probably going to write a book. <laughs> yeah. But eh, I'm well, too busy doing stuff. Yeah. Um, but you that explains all of this stuff in more detail. Okay, that's great. And so this that's, that's interesting that you say that. So this is something that I hope to do at some point, which I actually hope to, like, clean up the floor in my office at some point, too, which seems unlikely. But I my, – my intention – uh, there's a guy named Tim Ferriss. I don't know if you know Tim Ferriss. He's a podcaster and author. He wrote these books called The 4-Hour Workweek, The 4-Hour Body, things like that. He wrote a book called Tools of Titans, and it is basically a compilation, kind of an abstract of his podcast episodes. You know, he speaks to someone like you, somebody who's an authority or, a, you know, a someone who has, you know, knowledge in a certain area. Then he basically just compiles that down into like two pages. And so this book, Tools of Titans, is just a hundred different podcast guests Neat. and one or two pages with all of the nuggets, you know. And you lose the enjoyment factor probably of the conversation because I love the conversation. But man, you go right to the nuggets. And so my goal someday is to take we've done a hundred oh, nice. or something like that. And to do that, but is it gonna happen? No. But is it on my to-do list someday? Yes, absolutely. When I can sit in a cabin somewhere and watch it snow and then just, you know, compile, uh, that's not actually happening just yet. But I, <laughs> so you should do that, I, too. It sounds like you need to write a book. I should. And compile these nuggets because this stuff is so important. So let's get back to fatalities. If, you were an, when you're, if you're consulting with an organization like the one that I talked about, you know, this was a, a near miss, um, could have been uh, catastrophic. It was a confined space entry issue. And so... As we in the safety world know, confined space issues can lend themselves to multiple fatalities, unfortunately, based on, you know, maybe uh, a bad process or procedure followed by, you know, these uh, heartfelt, well-intentioned reactions that oftentimes don't go well. And so this one worked out okay, 
but steps were skipped. Okay, we didn't do the air monitoring as required. We and and so we look at I look at it and I think, okay, yes, the employee skipped a few steps. The attendant had to leave and go do something else. Air was not monitored prior to entry, but there mm-hmm. were some assumptions made based on the conditions that those things might not be critical. Um, I know there was a significant amount of work waiting to be done. And so all of these factors, but where do you start? Like, where would you start with something like this? Well, let me just kind of give you my quickly, my background and fatality stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I started in the fire service um, and look, I've, I've seen a lot of nasty stuff in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And and a lot of times I don't like to recall all of it. Um, But I, I, not only did I see the outcome of a car accident, people ejected from, you know, back, we were talking earlier about Fortran, right? Back mm-hmm. in the old days, uh, in the seventies, you know, you didn't stay in your car when you collided with something, you went, you're out the window, you're out the door. We had to go look for people in trees and woods and stuff. You know, I mean, in the fire service, we were looking for people. Mm-hmm. Did we get everybody that was in the car? I mean, that was one of the things that we had to account for. Did we get everybody that was in the car? Did mm-hmm. we find them? Okay, now you're in the car, right? We've designed the shell and we've protected you Uh, in the old days. We had to find you. So I've seen a lot of the bad stuff and I saw what happened just before it. You know, were they wearing seatbelts with that? Were they speeding all that, right? Well, I saw what happened just before that. Uh, And then once I got into um, the business of of safety, you know, in the elevator business, I saw a lot of fatalities. Uh, and investigated a lot of fatalities. And then I got out, out into the steel industry and did work in the steel industry and chased a lot of fatalities in the steel industry. And then I got into mining and saw a lot of fatalities in the mining industry and, and so on and so forth. And I worked for a company, we'll go nameless, uh, that had, when I started with them, 20 fatalities a year. Uh, so I got to look at 20 fatality reports and 20 fatality investigations. And I went back 10 years with them, 200 fatality investigations. So I've looked at a lot of fatalities. Mm-hmm. I've done a lot of fatality investigations and I've analyzed a lot of, uh, fatality investigations. And from that, you know, me, I came up with what things come together to create a fatality. And I'll, I'll walk through that with you. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're predictable, very predictable. Okay. Um, so, um, and, and in one of the things that, um, that I tell people all the time is, is um, part of the problem that you're seeing, it, it goes back to how good do you want to be, right, at safety? And what does that look like, right? Are leaders measuring risk or are they measuring outcomes? Okay. And then it, it, a lot of companies, and, and when I went to this steel company and started helping them, I remember talking to the CEO, and he said, Pete, I, you know, I, we've had decreased OSHA recordables, and we still have the same level of fatalities. And I said, this was a, long before this became part of fatality prevention, new fatality prevention mm-hmm. stuff. But I'm telling you, fatality prevention, been a fatality prevention business for a long time. Nothing, none of this is new, okay? None of the stuff that people are talking about is new, none of it. Okay, uh, they've assembled things together, but it's not new. Um, and and what was going on there is they weren't measuring fatality risk. 
they were measuring moderate risk that were high frequency exposures, which are the ocean recordables. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where that, we in Otis created that slice through the Heinrich pyramid a long time ago, mm-hmm. presented at ORC meetings where I know other people were, and then that got shared and, and, and evolved. But, but the reality is you, you don't die from typing. Mm-hmm. Okay, you have you die from fatality hazards. You die from a level of energy, inherent energy severity in a hazard. And if it doesn't have the energy to kill you, it's not going to kill you. So you got to go looking for them. Mm-hmm. And and when I go to companies and I say, "Where are your fatality hazards? Do you have a list of them?" They don't. Right. And if you don't have that, where are you starting from? So let me give you the the list of things that line up to kill people. And one of the one of these days, I got to publish this too. I'm taking notes, man. I'm like back in class. What first? You got to have a fatality hazard. You have to have a hazard with uh, the capacity for fatality harm in it. Um, and and I, when I tell people about hazards, I said, you know, to change a hazard, you have to change chemistry or physics. Okay, if you're really changing hazards, you got to change chemistry or physics. So it's got toxic energy. It's got you know, it's got enough energy to kill. It's, Fatality hazard. Mm-hmm. Okay. Two, you have to have either actual exposure or potential for exposure. Can somebody be exposed to that? Yes or no? Okay. Now, certainly you can go out and see actual exposure, but actual exposure isn't all of exposure. Right. Right. And people talk about fatalities as unique and stuff, but they're not. I'm just going to tell you because mm-hmm. you're going to see where they come from. Three, typically um, when you have a fatality, either you either have no control. No, no, and control, let's look at control as exposure control, okay? You either have no control, you have a low level of control, what I call a good day control. A good day control is like, you know, uh, in, a, in, a, uh, in a car, you have two controls to prevent you from going through the windshield in a front end collision, airbag and seatbelt. The mm-hmm. seatbelt is the good day control. It's a decision. Mm-hmm. Lockout, mm-hmm. tagout, decision, Okay. Decision controls fail all the time because people fail all the time, okay? Uh, whereas the airbag, you know, it just comes at me while I'm going at it, and it we meet in the middle. It's physics, okay? It's not pleasant physics. <laughs> right. right. Right? Boom, okay? And what I tell people all the time is if you've got fatality hazards, you need airbags. But these are not operator-dependent de- controls. That's right. You need airbags, mm-hmm. okay? Right? Uh, you know, passive controls, if you will. Mm-hmm. Okay. So either no control, low level control, or control not working, not effective, not appropriate, whatever the right word is. Okay. Now, that's three. Number four is usually the organization has an inability to see one through three clearly. One through, or my one through three clearly, right? That's the problem. Okay. So one through four can exist in companies for lots and lots of years. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of years. Because the company has an inability to see one through three and an inability to understand and 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 see that. Mm-hmm. So when people say, yeah, this is, you know, this has been in play or, or I, I listened to the situation you talked about uh, about the um, fine space entry. That is not the first time all of those things happened. Oh, God, no. So then you've got to say to yourself, and they didn't kill somebody, mm-hmm. right? Right. So then you got to say to yourself, why didn't they see that? Mm-hmm. 
and go walk back through that. Man, okay, exactly. Right. Why weren't they able to predict that fatality happening? And why did they not respect all of that coming together? Mm-hmm. That's where the big issue is. Right. And so that's the fatality. Yes. And it's interesting because when you are trying to identify these potentials, you know, I mean, everybody spends a lot of time on these OSHA recordable potentials. I don't want anybody to strain yeah. their back. Yeah. You know, we've just dropped $100 million on some kind of material <clears throat> handling, and that's great. We don't want OSHA recordables. But as you said, you don't die typing typically or doing those type of low-consequence activities. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so, right, right. and so how do you find those? How does an organization find those high energy potential hazards? What should they be doing to identify those? Well, let me just finish the list. We'll come back. Okay. Yeah, uh, so, so we got, remind me, please, because I get you off. Uh, so you got, you you got number four. four. You're in. A, yep. Yep. Okay. So you got number four. Number five. Or the organization doesn't see one through three clearly. Number five. Exactly. Or or respect them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, number five is the tipping point. And, 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 I, and, I, and I use one word, change. At every single fatality that I've ever looked at or investigated, and that's hundreds, had some dynamic that was unusual, different, happened just before all of that rolled into somebody dying. Didn't have the right people. Something didn't go the right way. Not, it didn't have enough time. He, there's a thousands of these change factors that happen. That is always the tipping point that took all of that risk into somebody or some people dying. Every time. Mm-hmm. Every time. Agreed. Okay. Now, what's the, 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 that's five. Sixth one. Is these organizational operational factors, and you know, and I think people talk about as context, or I talk about as climate, or culture, or whatever it is. It's it's the decision making paradigm of the organization that allows all of these things to either be strong or weak. Yep. Oh okay. my God. It sets the organization up for this. Like I just said in the grain situation, right? The organization is set up to create hazards, and if the organization isn't set up to see hazards being created with the management system being predictive, then they get into processes, which is buying and selling and storing, mm-hmm. okay? And those processes, are, if, the, if it gets into a process and the process becomes unbalanced, i.e. benefit more than risk, doesn't see all of its values balanced well, then that balance creates risk and then sooner or later that risk creates outcomes. And that's how it works. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Every single time. Every time. Every single time. And it works wow. that way for moderate and minor injuries, too. So that's why I say, you know, people talking about fatalities as special aren't going back far enough. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Wow. Oh, my God, man. So this is a course. So It is uh, a course. This is a course right here. This is a course that you need to teach. So, um, because I'm actually going to be speaking with this organization later today that had this incident earlier this week. And, and they, I, I got a text this morning, like, well, you know, what do we do next? And I said, what do you mean? What do we do next? I mean, we need to get everybody, the, the leadership team together and sit down and really drill down into this because I think most people's reaction is very superficial. 
They want to do something now. Okay, you know, that guy's going home oh, yeah. for three days yeah. without pay. And But as you said, this has been happening systemically for a long time. You know, the, the near miss was the result of, as you said, this kind of these change factors. There was something different about this situation, but this isn't the first time that we have ignored. All the stuff was lined up, ready to tip. Exactly. Yep. And it's been there, hovering there, and it's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. been to some degree ignored. It's yep. not unidentified because one of the things that I do when I go into a facility, I know that I, I've told this story before, but I know a lot of my clients look at me and say, what are we paying this asshole for? Because I go out onto the floor and I talk Sorry, to the employees and I watch the employees work and I talk to them yeah. about it. And I ask them, you know, what scares you here, man? I mean, what is it that you're afraid of? Right. Okay. And I, I know yeah. that, you know, I saw yeah. your 300 logs and man, we got a lot of, you know, paper cuts. We're going to get what to the can hurt of you. That. Yeah. Right. But who gives a shit? I mean, right. I, I shouldn't say that. We no, don't. I, I hear you. No, I hear yeah. you. But these employees know, you know, and I was at a place one time, they were doing some chrome plating. I was doing a little industrial hygiene work. And I asked the plater, the, the operator, I was like, what about this process scares you? And he's like, this is nothing, but let me show you this. And he walked me around to the corner to something that I wasn't even there to be attentive yep. to and showed me something that they had him doing. And I was like, holy <laughs> shit. And I was like, you know, this is gold, man. And if you don't ask, they're not going to tell you, but this is the gold, you know, this is what you're hoping to find. And all I had to do was ask. And he was more than happy to tell me, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. And I I think that's, that's why I like you. I I know you and I kind of go about things from a humanistic perspective. Mm We, we, you know, we're not, we're not high on the safety stuff. We're really on people. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. You know, and 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 people people are where it's at because mm-hmm. people are the implementers. And I tell leaders this all the time. I said, you know, you folks, you executives may make the first decision, but your employees make the last one. And the right. last one is the one that counts. Right. No doubt. OK. Exactly so right. if your decisions aren't being measured by their decisions. I know you think you're, do- you're all doing wonderful I, when I say to people. What's the reality of safety in your organization? They'll say, they'll tell you what they're doing. No, 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 no. I don't know what you're doing. I want to know the result of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know that? Yeah. You know? How, how do you outcomes? How, how, do, you, how do you get your point across without offending these people? I mean, obviously. That's a really good point. This is nuanced, right? It is. It, it's, it's a walk back. Mm-hmm. It, it's, a, it's a slow walk back, right? And, um, <laughs> I start with so they see it somehow, or do you actually have to? It, no, it, anytime you want to change people's perspective from theirs to yours, you've got to start with theirs. Mm-hmm. And, and you know wh- wh- what I when I started in Otis uh, in, in Europe, the first thing I said in my executive, my, my boss thought I was freaking nuts. <laughs> I said, I want to go. I want to go work as a as a grunt with with elevator mechanics for a week Mm -hmm. thank you all right i want to go work with them yep i want to go see what they have to do i want to see the balls they're juggling i want to see their situation i want to see the reality of all of this stuff 
in their world because that's what matters. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if we don't set them up to succeed, they will have to make their own decisions mm -hmm. to succeed. And they right. may not be the ones you like. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's that first and, decision, last decision. Apparently. Right. So let's go see the real world, you know, because they don't see it. My boss uh, was German, like I said, and he was senior VP. And he would say, Herr Suska, uh, what is going on in Croatia? And, you know, we had Croatia. We had, I mean, I had all kinds of crazy places because he had never been to Croatia. Here's the guy leading all of these countries, had never been to Croatia. He knew I was on the ground everywhere. I knew what was going on everywhere. So he said, tell me about the business in Croatia. Tell me about this. Tell me about it. He trusted my perspective on reality. Mm -hmm. and, and when I talk to safety professionals about kind of going from the island to the mainland, I said, you know, you've got a lot of capacity that you've learned in safety, if you're a good safety professional, that, that the business people need that mm -hmm. they don't have. Okay. And that is an understanding of what's really going on versus what the numbers say. Because the executives get metrics, they get data, they get red, greens, and yellows. Mm -hmm. Okay. You see where that comes from. And I many times have looked at somebody's data, walked out in the field and said, these don't match up. Yes, no doubt. All the time. Well, and that could be quality. That could be finance. That could be anything. These don't match up. Now what's up? That's interesting. You know? I, I, well, it kind of goes back to that same, um, and as you said, leaders are oftentimes just making decisions based on the information that's being provided them, obviously. If, sure. they're, not, if they're not sure. interested or don't have the ability to be in every facility and do that, they probably yeah. don't, you know? And so it, we feed them information. Oftentimes we feed them information that is going to be somewhat beneficial to our year-end bonus, perhaps. Maybe yep. we, maybe we yep. filter some of that. And so they're getting the, oh, look at these, man, our, our EMR is going down, our lost work days rate is going down, things are good, we are really trending in the right direction. But all of those fatality potentials, they still exist out in the plant, we've never even addressed those. Yep. And, you know, we're just walking this, we're just straddling this fine line of, you know safety capacity and catastrophe it seems like and, and you know i mean when you get into the organizational reality at the c-suite and and um and in the board board of directors boards of directors are very powerful in organizations if you have a really good board they will poke hard at at the house mm -hmm. how are we doing this i yeah i see these numbers how are we getting there because mm -hmm. they're more val they're value oriented Okay, where CEO on down, they're performance oriented. Okay. Okay. That's the what. The boards will poke at the house. A lot of times I'll be brought in because something a board person said to a CEO. Really? Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because look, you know, like you said, everybody vertically is, is marching to this performance directive. And, and maybe that, that um, performance directive is is based on stockholder value or, or whatever it is, you know? And, and once you get down from the CEO into that first line, um, things, that's where the translation starts, mm. okay? And some of that translation is not so good. Mm -hmm. And then it filters down to the organization. Um, so yeah, you gotta walk that back, to your point originally, you gotta walk that back slowly.
Mm-hmm. You got to see what they value. I always start with what they value. Express to me with what you value. What you value. I'm not there to change values. Do they typically to, respond honestly to that question? Oh yeah, oh yeah, they should. Okay, mm-hmm. tell me what you value and what those values look like in practice. Okay, and that's where they have a little hard time. Yeah, yeah, okay. you can't really hide it if it's not. Yeah, but you know, I don't want any injuries. Versus, I know what a no injury environment looks like. Mm-hmm. Two different things. Right. Right. Okay. Now the problem with the safety profession is we're working on a no injury environment and we're looking for money and actions and things that they're not measuring. Yeah. Okay. So there's a disconnect there. We measure risk management. They measure outcomes. Sure. And, and they're comfortable with outcomes because everything they receive is results. Mm-hmm. Most everything that they're seeing at the top is results and incidents and injuries are results. Absolutely. So it fits into the paradigm of what they measure. Interesting. But the value, the real value and understanding of safety and quality and ethics is in the how, not the what. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, wow. And you got to ask the how questions. Man. So how, and, and you got to ask the how questions about goodness as much as badness, if you will. Mm-hmm. How is it we're doing so good? Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> those are great questions, man. And those are questions that, you know, I, I know a lot of safety professionals. I know a lot of safety consultants. Those questions aren't being asked. They're not really being addressed. I, In fact, you're one of the few people that I've spoken with who really gets that, really understands that. And um, I'm just only now learning it and becoming aware of that. You know, I, I, have, I agree with you that my practice is primarily this humanistic, um, behavioral, practice. It didn't start that way. You know, when I was with OSHA and those doing those things, it, it was not fashioned that way, but it seems to be as I have grown and evolved and met people like you, who've, uh, I've, who've, I've learned from, that's how I have progressed. Um, you know, there's, you know, you have to have a certain technical understanding of many of these things to be effective, you know, at least as a consultant in their minds, but it's really about, digging down into those, as you said, those values and those practices and those expectations. Um, You know, I go into facilities and you've done this too. I go into facilities and talk with employees and they're really disheartened because the, the management will oftentimes say the right things, but they don't really follow up with those things. Or maybe that's not truly the value when push comes to shove, those things aren't really the values of the organization, they, they kind of filter out, you know, maybe they they don't float to the top when things are critical. And I think that's true of, you know, this organization that I'm talking about now, th- these, these are well-intentioned, um, caring individuals, but I think they've, they've lost sight of sometimes what you're describing that, you know, that, uh, these, these hazards exist and, and we can't, you know, the benefits that we are trying to achieve can't outweigh some of these, you know, this hazard control or mitigation, you know, it's, it's really interesting. And now I've got like three pages of notes that, and, uh, and 15 papers that I need to read uh, before I go meet with these guys at one o'clock. So <laughs> I'm going to have a busy lunchtime. Well, you walk through that one through, what was it? One through six or whatever it was list six. I just gave yep. you. Yep. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to smile when you say, uh, well, not smile, but you're going to say, oh my. Yeah. These things, these things are all the case. Yeah, and you just be able to fill in the hazards and the exposure, and you could just yep. fill it in. Exactly. 
Now, so, what you got to give them is the capacity to do that before something bad happens. Yes, absolutely. So are you a one-man shop? Do you have employees that work with you? Um, you know, I try not to have employees. I have a lot of folks that work with me that are sole proprietors that I've kind of helped set up. Okay. And it's kind of arm's length thing. I have a, a bunch of those folks that I pull in for particular things. But all of a lot of what we've talked about today is the me show. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know. Absolutely. And so and that's much like my organizational setup is just, you know, colleagues and friends who are also at probably similar places in their journey. And so um, I. I have the great benefit of knowing most of the safety people around this area and being able to farm work to people who have certain expertise or certain temperaments even sure. that I know sure. might mesh well with someone. So I, I've become somewhat of like a, not a puppet master. That seems as I don't control these people, but I know. Of, yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah. It, it, it is really nice, but I, if people, I mean, are you able to take on more work? Do you have the ability sure. to handle more work? Sure, because, sure. Uh, there are a lot of organizations that I work with that I would love to put in touch with you so that they can start this journey of just that self-evaluation journey. Uh, people that want to do better, that they want to be, you know, they're looking for best practice level performance and uh, not just basic compliance stuff. And so I'm going to send them to you, man. Well, I, I think the other piece here that I kind of have some pride in is the fact that the value they're going to get for this is goes way beyond safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to start to see that these principles that we're talking about today are in everything. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I can go out. Remember, I talked about the rusty process. Mm-hmm. I can go out, dissect that process and say, you're losing X amount of dollars today. Okay. I mean, I've gone into companies, I go into food companies where, where I've told them you're doing lockout tag out too much. And people, even safety professionals will like recoil when I say that. <laughs> right. what, do you, what, what do you mean? Right. You know, what do you, yeah. You're reaching in too much. You're having to shut down too often. And when you set people up for a discipline that they don't see as completely value, they see as being conforming, okay, and they have to do it over and again, they're going to start to round the edges. They're going to start to make shortcuts. Why? Because there's no good reason for you to have to stick your hand in there and shut the process down. You're doing that because the process fails. Keep the process from failing. Okay. If you here's I have some basic principles, but if you have a mechanized process, you should not have to reach in there. Right. You should not have to do manual work. Exactly. That's why we have the process. So exactly. Keep it healthy. Keep I the totally, process healthy. I totally agree. Come yeah, on. That's a great observation and comment. I I totally agree with that. Why are we not refining the process rather than just adding on layers of response to failures in the process? Yeah, and, and they don't see the cost of that because many times the cost of that doesn't go into the product, into the overhead. It's direct versus indirect cost, right? And now you're getting to finance. But mm-hmm. so when you go and dissect where all this loss is ending up and why they're not seeing that, and then you can take it back and, and measure it and say, if you're not, if you don't have to do this, this is what you're saving. And in addition, there's no exposure to the hazard. Mm-hmm. See, the hazard. 
modification and exposure modification comes along for the ride in the improved process, and the improved process is predicated on an ROI, mm-hmm. instant ROI. I'm going to save you money, and at the same time, I'm going to prevent people from getting hurt or killed. Right. Who says no to that? <laughs> nobody, but nobody really sees it until nobody. they're dead good oftentimes, right? Like, yeah, you got you got to step back back from safety to see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that is beautiful, and that's that is a comment that I made to these these guys. Why do we do this in the first place? Why exactly is the process dependent upon this step? Why don't we just eliminate that? Well, uh, 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 you know, I mean, well, I know. you know, I it's funny because I, I this whole recalibration process. One of the I, I do this these sessions with them, and one of the sessions is I. I have this process that has a mezzanine, okay? And there's a snapshot of a photo with a forklift there and a tank on the top of it, raising it up to the top of the mezzanine. And it's really a snapshot from a video of just a second before the tank fell off and there's a guy underneath nearly killing him, okay? Mm-hmm. And, but they don't see that. They see the situation before that. And they identify the hazards. Like we're talking about the hazards. And then I get into roles and responsibilities and I talk about gatekeeping. And I say, okay, finance, this is where hazards come through finance. This is where hazards come through quality. This is where hazards come through engineering, right? And, and then I say, where did these hazards come in the door of these functions? And they do a working group on that, okay? Mm-hmm. And then they realize that every single fatality and serious injury hazard is predicated on the fact that someone decided to put a mezzanine in this process. <laughs> right, right. No, mez- no mezzanine, no forklift. No mezzanine, no raising parts or equipment. No mezzanine, no fall hazard. No mezzanine, no stairs. See where I'm going? Yeah, Go on. Zero hazard, zero risk. Right. Okay. We are not talking about that enough in our profession because we don't have the latitude to explain that in a business case. Yes. Okay. That's fantastic. And the the engineer in the group said, you know something? He said, I would have designed it that way. And I said, why? He says, because I always try to use gravity instead of a pump. I said, I understand that. I said, do you see the downside of gravity? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, he sees the upside of gravity. Right, right. Of course. That is brilliant, man. I love it. So have you ever been to Nebraska? Yeah. Have you you get out here periodically? I know there's good pheasant hunting there. There is good pheasant hunting here, and they're <laughs> you know, and good steak. Oh um, yeah, right. Maybe next spring we can get you out here to do some training on this recalibration and some of those concepts sure. for uh, a groups of people. We'll have to work on that. But in the meantime, man, I think we're running up on our time. I've got a lot of notes to digest now, it's man. Going fast. Is, uh, it's going very fast. This has been like a course in. Uh, operational management decision-making, which I love. And this is good stuff, man. Well, I've got to give you a compliment. And and, and the compliment is, is that you're a tremendous facilitator and you've got to be a really good facilitator to be able to run a podcast and not take it over yourself. And, and, And you do a really good job of that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I consider myself incredibly lucky to be able to, I have, learned more about safety in the last couple of years doing this than I did for the 35 years that I'd been doing it prior. 
you know, reading books and regulations and here, going to classes and stuff. This is where it is. And I, well, you're a lifelong learner, right? And that's what puts you, right. I consider myself a life. And I'm also like a science reject because I was also a science engineering guy who found his way into safety, but I could not be more grateful. Yeah. I, I love this work. You know, I love the opportunity to see and learn from other people. And this podcast is just like gravy for me because I'm the one that's benefiting the most from this podcast. I, I hope the listeners, I know the listeners, because I get a lot of emails and text messages and LinkedIn communications. I love that episode, or I really thought that was interesting. People that I don't know, you know, will be making those, and I really appreciate that. I love that feedback because I'm going to continue doing this until no one will come and join me any longer. But it is fantastic, and I so yes, I'm a lifelong learner, and I am committed to, you know. But now I just take this stuff that you've taught me, and I go shamelessly, you know, pass it on to someone else. So, you know, it is what that's, it is. That's what it's for. That's what it's for. That's what it's for. What do you got going on this weekend, man? Thank you. Any plans for the weekend? Oh wow. I got to pick up my son at college uh, yes. and bring him home. Uh, yeah. Is he getting off for yeah, the Thanksgiving I've holiday? Yeah, I've got uh, a, an 18-year-old and a – yeah, he is. So he's coming back. Um, nice. I just moved my boat. Uh, I, as you, you can see, Sherman, if you couldn't tell by the background in my cup, <laughs> okay, um, I'm, fly, I'm a fly fisherman. <clears throat> Fantastic. Uh, I, fi- I fish. That's what I do. And, 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 and in winter, I tie flies. Do you? So you sit in front of the fireplace with your yeah. Labrador at your feet, and you tie flies. Well, he's he's a little smaller than a Labrador. He's a uh, he's a Jack Russell mix. Oh yeah, man. I love them. <laughs> he thinks he's a Labrador though. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. I my grandfather used to tie flies and do that same thing, and oh. um, I and it's almost kind of like I've forgotten the name of the artist, but it's that. It's, it's the painting that you put on your wall of tying flies with the dog laying there and then the fire in the fireplace. What am I, who, who's the guy I'm trying to think? I yeah, can't I can't think about. of it. I can't I think of it. Um, yeah. But it's kind of like a Hallmark card, man. It is. It is. It would be nice to have your son. You have one? Two, two boys. One, uh, one eighteen and one fifteen. Uh, he's going to be fifteen in January. You know, I've got two boys as well, and uh, it's probably like we're probably like separated at birth ourselves somehow, perhaps. But <laughs> I think we are. But um, like I said before, if somebody cut us in half, the rings we'd count the same yeah, amount of rings. They would yeah. be the same, and they're both coming <laughs> home here soon. I, I'm looking forward to that. I enjoy having my sons home. It's uh, for a few well, days. Well, and, and we were talking about your mom, my mother-in-law. My parents died quite a long time ago, um, but my mother-in-law lives with us, and she's a sweet lady. Nice. Uh, she's 93. Oh, my gosh. And uh, it's really great for her to be here, not just for, for her, but for my kids and, and everything. Mm-hmm. It sets That's up a important. great dynamic. That is important. So one last question before we part. Sure. Turkey or ham, what do you guys eat at Thanksgiving? Turkey. Traditional Thanksgiving? Yeah. Yep. New Age Thanksgiving? You guys no, no, traditional. <laughs> I don't think they could handle anything. The, the cranberry has to look like the can. <laughs> right, exactly. With the little ridges in it. <laughs> That's right. It's like. Right. This isn't real cranberry. It doesn't have any rings on it. 
Right, exactly. That's awesome, man. <laughs> I hope you enjoy your Thanksgiving holiday with your family. Thank you so much for this. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and, and I have a lot here to digest, but this is really critically important stuff. So, first of all, thank you for what you're doing. I, I think this is really important work, and uh, I am grateful that there are people like you doing this stuff, and um, I hope we can get together again and do Chapter 2 because um, I, I love this stuff, and I know the audience will really benefit from this. So, have a great holiday. You too. Um, I hope we can get you out to Nebraska next spring when the when the weather turns and it's a little. That'd be great. Time. Say hi to your mom. I will, man. Thank you, Pete. You're Thank welcome. Thank you. Everybody. Thank you for what you do. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, man. We'll talk to you later. Take care. Right. Bye bye. A Huda Media Production.